Welcome to another episode. I, I'm, I'm always wondering if I should say some new type of uh, opening sentence because I basically say that every time. And if someone's binging these podcasts, it's almost like it's the same recording just coming. And on one level it is. It's like I got a fucking cassette tape in my mind. And the moment I step to the microphone to <laughs> record a podcast intro, it's just insert play Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on Matt Zeon. Um, Matt is the creator and orchestrator of the artist collective known as Time Wheel. And uh, Time Wheel actually did some dope shit with Aubrey for On It before I even worked at On It. And I met Matt for the first time in the on it offices uh back when i was just a little guppy when i was answering emails and shit and no one knew who i was and i had a terrible haircut and i weighed like 175 pounds because i'd only been doing keto for like six years and hadn't been working out because i hadn't figured out how to fix my back it was like a different motherfucking life and uh he and i connected again a cut like probably about half a year ago um when he came to me with this really cool idea that he and his uh, artists wanted to do a project with me that was inspired by Midnight Gospel, where Duncan Trussell got with some artists for Netflix and they did like a five or six episode series where they took clips of his podcast and just made wild, wild uh, stories slash little episodes from it. And... So we started working on that and then I wanted to have him on the podcast and he is a motherfucking interesting bag of characters. He is a musician. Uh, he ran a band for a long time. He's an entrepreneur. He's a psychonaut. And uh, we got into some really interesting stuff on this podcast. One of the things that I'm finding is that the podcasts that I do in person just have a different magic to them. And there's this thing that happens on the podcast when I'm in person where the person I'm interviewing will begin to say something and I get like mushroom vision. And the best way that I can describe it is I'm looking at their eyes almost the entire time and their eyes are stable in my vision, but everything else in my vision starts to move and dance and breathe like I'm on mushrooms. And it feels like my psyche does that when it can feel that the other person is getting into flow. And that happened probably about four times on this podcast. And it's one of my favorite reasons to do the podcasts in person. And I think that you guys are going to really enjoy this. Um, as always, if you want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is to hop on uh, erigasi.com and get on the newsletter, share the newsletter, uh, share this podcast with people if you think it's going to help them or just be you know, a little delicious linguistic nougat that you can share. Um, I also have two journaling courses on the website. The first one will help you establish a journaling practice and the second one will help you create an inner castle where you connect to the parts inside of you and will help you connect to the thing that bridges you to God and it will help you know exactly what to do today. So 
no big deal, but it also will fuck up your life if you're trying to live a life where you're in denial of the whisper inside of you. So proceed with caution there. And as always, thank you for your time and for your attention. Um, I really understand how valuable it is uh, for any of you to give your attention to this podcast, given what's going on in the information ecology. So deeply appreciate it. I love you all so much and please enjoy. Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, you and I have been circulating in each other's lives for a long time now. And um, I don't remember, I think the first time I met you, I was still working at On It, and you came into the office, this was years ago, and uh, you had shared that you had helped Aubrey do some pretty dope viral art stuff uh, for On It. Uh, years before I even worked there. And we mm -hmm. kind of touched base a little bit. And then um, one of the podcasters that I connected with uh, when nobody knew who I was, he was one of the first people that like put me on a platform, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Michael Phillips of the Third Eye Drops. Yeah. And uh, you are one of the architects and masterminds behind the rise and ascension of that dope, dope podcast. <laughs> and then... Uh, a couple of months ago, you reached out to me and uh, proposed what is now turning into one of the coolest things that uh, I've been a part of so far. And uh, we'll give people a sneak peek, um, but you and I are working together on something that feels like it's going to be uh, like our version of the midnight gospel of yeah. what uh, Duncan Trussell did with Netflix. And ours is going to be even weirder than that <laughs> in some ways. But what you and your team are doing with uh, my insane imaginings of my inner world, like every time I open up an email from you all and see the PowerPoint of what you guys are working on, mm -hmm. it blows my fucking mind. And so <clears throat> super excited about that. Um, and just thank you for doing the work that you do in the world. And I know that through this podcast, people are going to get an opportunity to learn more about how someone uh, gets to be this dope and this artistic. And my intuition is it's probably a lot of struggle and a lot of trauma that was alchemized into uh, <laughs> transformation. But mm -hmm. we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. Let's say that I met you for the first time and you just finished doing that. You just finished doing something that puts you in the flow. What is the thing that you just finished doing? But then I come up to you afterwards and I ask, who are you and what do you do? Uh, what would your answer be? And before you answer, I, it feels like I have to start offering this preface. Mm -hmm. Some people on the podcast will say some shit like, I am, I am you know, the force of God moving through Matt. Like, <laughs> I don't think that's how you would ever respond to a stranger who was asking you, who right. are you and what do you do? Uh, and so I'm giving you permission to identify with the ego that has a name and has a historic. Uh, totally. Yeah. So who are you and what do you do? Well, the exercise that as of the past year has been putting me into that flow state you're referring to is uh, leading ecstatic dance. And wow. it's also dancing um, because during the leading, you're dancing. 
you know, kind of providing that example of let's just be free and let loose, uh, feel as if no one's watching, as if there's no judgment present in the room. And who I am is I am Matt, Matt Zian, and uh, I'm a creative director, entrepreneur, musician, podcaster, and psychonaut. <laughs> mm, I resonate with a lot of that. Uh, what is your first memory? First memory. First thing coming to mind without sitting and meditating with that question for five, 10 minutes is uh, I used to have this blue blanket. I called it my blankie when I was little. I don't remember what age. I'm going to say three. And I tie it around my neck and I would jump off the couch and feel like I was truly flying. You know what I mean? And I would do it all the time. I would find things to jump off, like whether it be a couch or a, um, a chair or the front porch or whatever it was. I would just feel like I was flying. And it's weird because I don't think I had seen like Superman yet, you know, yeah. which he has the cape and he flies. But there's just something in me that knew like this blankie gives me some type of magical power. And what is the primary emotion that you feel uh, connected to that image or that memory? Fun, freedom, play. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess those would be the primary ones there. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I feel into on this podcast is it seems to be that like, our brain is growing so rapidly from, you know, even when we're inside our mother um, up until about the age three and we grow and develop enough cognitive architecture that then there's then a powerful enough emotion that seems like it like jumpstarts the engine of self-reflective ego and like it's the birth of our identity mm -hmm. and that whatever the emotion is that's connected to like the like, oh, I'm a thing that's separate from other things. It creates a really strong, like, um, undercurrent of how we seek to be as an ego throughout the rest of our lives. And mm. so being a psychonaut uh, and being an entrepreneur, like two of the metaphors that we use for both of those activities is like, uh, jumping off the ledge yeah. or jumping into it, totally. you know? And, uh, that seems to be, a fundamental part of the mat, yeah. you know, that mats. Totally. What do you remember as the first story that really captured you as a kid? It could be either a movie or a book or like a bedtime tale. Right. Yeah. So part of um, my interest in filmmaking, um, you know, just creating videos has been a part of my life for a very long time. Um, my dad used to have a camcorder that he would just kind of let me play with, you know? So by age five, I was making these little movies. Wow. And I remember one of the first movies I made because I was so inspired. 
was my own little kid version of the film Independence Day with Will Smith. It's about an alien invasion. You know, aliens come to Earth. And uh, this guy is a hero. And he, you know, does what needs to be done to rescue the human race. Um, So the first film I made was a five, ten minute short of me pretending to be Will Smith. (laughs) This is really interesting. There's a couple of threads that I want to go down. But before I go down those threads, if you could retell the uh, Independence Day story, like you were, let's imagine that you're a father and Mm -hmm. that you have a smart and curious child who's like nine or 10, Mm -hmm. and they're asking for a bedtime story. And you choose this as the like route to tell them, you know, like a two or three minute story. Mm -hmm. I invite you to tell us that story as if we are the child. And so it's something that people do on the podcast uh, is they'll like explain it as opposed to tell it. And Mm -hmm. the invitation is to tell it. Okay. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. It was a beautiful day. Everything was going as it should. And uh, they stepped outside to check uh, a man, stepped outside to check the mail. And as he looked up, he realized there was something in the sky he had never seen before. He recognized this as not of this earth. He knew that this was a very pivotal event in his life. And that a lot of things that he never thought could be true are now true. He goes inside, turns on the TV, and realizes there is a uh, widespread panic about this very thing. An alien ship has come to Earth. For what reason, we don't know. But he's inquisitive enough, the man, to try and find the answers. So... He goes to work and he works with people that are pretty informed on what this thing is and how they're going to go about dealing with it. Um, They discover that they don't know whether it's hostile or friendly. Um, And there seems to be an, you know, a general curiosity by everyone, but also a sense of we must protect what is ours. So a team led by this man, Will, we'll call him Will Smith, or Will. (laughs) I forget his name at the moment in the film. Um, But he leads his team to discover what's going on with this thing. And uh, they get in there airplanes and they fly around this alien ship to try and discover what it is. Can they communicate with it? Does it uh, fight them or does it let them be? And uh, they discover it is hostile. (laughs) And there's a, a battle that ensues in the sky in which Will loses some of his best friends and becomes quite enraged 
at this craft for doing this to him. So with this energy, he fights one of the smaller aircraft that had emitted from the ship onto the ground and confronts the alien head on. He finds it in the ship. It is wounded and doesn't have its full power anymore or the protection of its um, alien technology spacecraft. And he uh, has a one-to-one battle with it and um, wins the battle. He then puts the alien in his truck and drives it into the desert where he discovers Area 51, (laughs) a secret military base. And they let him in because he is of proper clearance. And um, he discovers these guys have been around for a long time. (laughs) This is not the first time they've come. This is not the first alien that the Earth has seen. And so they realize this thing is uh, quite a threat and that it could actually be the doom of humanity of take over the world. You know, these aliens could take over their home and Will does not want this to happen. He has a wife and a kid to protect, friends, family, co-workers, and he decides I'm going to try and win this battle just, you know, with him and his team. And so through thick and thin, they fight and they fight and they fight and they finally outsmart these aliens who are extremely smart, extremely technically skilled. And through teamwork and through sacrifice, they win the battle and the earth is saved. You crushed it. You actually crushed that very much. Thank you for telling that story uh, with that level of uh, presence. A lot of interesting things arise, but it feels like if I go into what's really interesting too soon, I'll miss some really dope shit. But the first thing that I want to share is it seems to be that the uh, story that first captures us mm-hmm that there's a deep intelligence happening inside of us where I don't yet know, and I don't know if it's ever articulatable in a way that's like scientifically uh, logical, mm-hmm. but if you approach it from a mythic standpoint, it is as if we are born with a soul the Greeks would call it a daemon, but mm-hmm. this inner guiding force that knows what we're meant to be in the same way that there's a force inside of a seed that knows that it's meant to be. And I don't mean knows in like a conscious thinking way, but knows in like a embodied, in the same way that your cells know how to reproduce and replicate themselves. There's something inside of a seed that knows how to make it whatever it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something inside of each human that knows what it's trying to be. And the moment it sees a story that has the mythical undertones and overtones of like our story, that Mm -hmm. force like goes out and grabs it through our attention and like fixates us on it. Cause like an interesting thing 
to feel into is you don't get to choose what you're interested in. Right. There's something inside of you that's almost like grabbing the thing and grabbing you and the thing at the same time and you like lock onto it. Totally. So some of the mythical overtones that I feel in that story is like one, um, something is here that doesn't fit any of our belief about what can be here. Mm -hmm. And I through curiosity and the will to protect what I love, I'm going to go face that thing. Yeah. Um, I don't, and I'm curious to get into your specifics, um, but also in that myth is the uh, implication that the other is hostile mm -hmm. and that the adequate response to the hostile other is force and, you know, kind of the, um, you know, death ending destruction yeah. and um the fundamental thing that leads to victory is outsmarting not yeah. necessarily being more brutishly powerful mm -hmm. um if you want to go here uh this is the question that's arising but we also don't have to but my intuition is that you have had psychedelic experiences where you have encountered others and some of those encounters were hostile. They were not pleasant. And that you had to uh, struggle with those things. And that through intellect, we're able to come to a resolution. Uh, is that true? It's true in certain circumstances. I will say many of my psychedelic experiences were of an easy nature. Um, in fact, I was like, how is this so easy? Because I hear about how hard this is. <laughs> how do I feel so at home here, you know? But certainly, uh, darkness does come up, and I have had to contend with those forces. And it's always been intuitively, um, I don't know, um, <clears throat> I almost want to say easy again. Smooth. Yeah, smooth to contend with those forces. What is it asking of you? Is it a genuine request? Can you grow from this request? And by answering those things, a lot of times what they're asking is for you to take an action in your normal sober life to do something you're afraid to do. I resonate with that. Mm -hmm. Intuitively, uh, what is the hostile alien in your life like um yeah i'm just gonna not offer examples to that would prime you uh mm -hmm. if we took that myth as kind of a guiding overtone for how reality feels to you what is the hostile alien in your life you know <clears throat> i think it's a something that a lot of people deal with and it's fear of not being good enough fear of not being able to fully realize your dreams. And I try every day <laughs> to realize my dreams. Um, sometimes I just don't feel it. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm not feeling it today. And it brings a, an anxiety with that. Yeah. You know? um, so that's something I, I deal with. And I've learned tools and techniques through books and podcasts and all types of stuff as to how to at least 
make the most of these days. And it'll usually be some type of wellness practice. Well, today, if I'm not going to edit or, you know, podcast or do something creative, I'm going to at least tune my body, my mind up so that maybe tomorrow I'll have a better chance. Yeah. So sauna is a big one. If I'm just not feeling it, let's go to the sauna, you know, let's sweat this shit out. Usually by the time I'm out, I feel pretty damn good. Yeah. You know, I feel much better. Like, oh, there's a relief. There's a weight off my shoulder. Um, meditation, ice bath, all these things, breath work, uh, mild medicine experiences like hape that aren't a full four hour, six hour, 12 hour duration thing um, can tend to recenter so that, you know, I can accept that today is just one of those days and we're going to get back on the horse tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of threads I want to go down in there. Uh, but before we do, the really interesting thing that came up when you were sharing the Independence Day uh, movie or story, I haven't reconnected to that movie uh, in probably like 20 years. It's one of the reasons why I love this podcast is it helps mm -hmm. me feel back into like what I felt like and what my life felt like when that story came into my life. And I've had a very interesting uh, journey with my relationship to aliens. Mm -hmm. um, most of my life, I... Uh, have interpreted basically every alien story as either um, a Jungian manifestation of the unconscious as a symbol to uh, transmit a specific type of energy to the individual and it happens at night or under psychedelic experiences, but that it is a emanation of the psyche. Or like... Bob Lazar type stuff um, that mm -hmm. militaries are doing things in the world that are far beyond what we think that they are doing. And if there's any physical evidence of any of this type of shit, it's something from humans uh, in some type of operation where we're completely in the dark about what they're doing and how advanced they are. Right. Um, and then the last couple of years, I've had uh, more intelligent and uh, persuasive and passionate people give different and deeper stories where I still can only offer what my subjective intuition is about this. And it doesn't mean it's right, but it's, it's still where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of months ago, um, actually what started it is about a year ago, I saw a documentary called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Are you familiar with this? I haven't seen it, no. It is the first alien documentary that I've ever seen where I felt something in me go, oh, that, that actually resonates. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of my big things about not vibing with almost any alien story is that the evolutionary chances that a intelligence growing on a different planet would have even close to a similar body and brain function and linguistic function mm -hmm. as us is functionally zero. Mm -hmm. That even if evolution rehappened on this planet, like if we got <laughs> right. to somehow start the clock, the chances of the most advanced life form looking anything like us is actually remarkably low. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that evolution is moving in this like 
directive way towards higher and higher elegance. And on some level it is, but the way that evolution goes about growing on itself is, uh, it's elegant in a certain way, but it's not, it's not predetermined towards a specific outcome. Yeah. And so whenever there's stories of like, it, it, it has two arms and two legs and two eyes, <laughs> but a really big head and it's much smaller. Like there's just, it's never vibed with my intuition, mm -hmm. but in close encounter of the fifth kind, the way that they explain the alien encounter <clears throat> is that some type of intelligent life form, which is that, which may have had millions of years of evolutionary progress beyond where we are at, have gotten to a point where they don't have bodies. Mm -hmm. They are some type of consciousness that's embedded into the structure of reality and they're outside of space and time. Yeah. And that this is a hard thing to conceptualize, but um, just go with me here. Yeah. And that if a group of humans or a single human can get to a certain consciousness vibration, mm -hmm. They are like a radar blip to this other thing. Yeah. And then this other thing will phase into three-dimensional reality because it's outside of it and will appear as light. Mm -hmm. But then it's transmitting information or consciousness through the light to the human that's interacting with it. Yeah. I don't know if I get if I did a good job there explaining what this feels like, but the documentary does a really good job. But it, through seeing that, I was like, that at least makes sense yeah. to my intuitions about like how organic matter grows in, mm -hmm. in this universe. Right. And that one of the things that he talks about in that documentary is that this type of force, the idea that it could even be hostile is to misunderstand it so tremendously and to project our human nature onto this thing. Mm -hmm. And that the idea of hostile or attack is just, it's not even within that thing's apparatus of how it would function because it doesn't have a body. It doesn't need to protect itself. It doesn't right. need to fight. And that the stories that we have about aliens in mm -hmm. the culture, uh, the dude who did this documentary, um, it's not Bob Lazar, but it's kind of the other main dude who like speaks out on this stuff. I forget his name, mm -hmm. but he was essentially saying that there is a um, orchestrated uh, intent on our government to put out a narrative that yeah, anything beyond is hostile. Right. So that if it ever needs to use this as like the ultimate power tool to create the greatest amount of fear to do whatever the things are that they need to do, yeah. they can activate this zeitgeist that they've been curating for 50 or 60 or 70 years mm -hmm. as a way to, you know, help them make the progress towards creating the institutions and the laws that give them more power so they can protect you. Yep. And that Independence Day, in hindsight, feels like such a fucking um, emanation of that intent. It does. That can be true. And also the mythological overtones of everything was normal. And then something entered the normal that no one could understand. <laughs> and because it was beyond our understanding, it created panic. And then individual heroes step up to confront the chaos. Right and then make order and peace out of it. That still is true. 
So that's a lot of shit that I just dropped on the table. What mm-hmm. arises in you uh, from yeah. that? Yeah, I love it. I really need to watch that film. I'm sure I'll resonate. Um, a bunch comes up for sure. One of which being that I have felt into aliens being higher dimensional entities more right. so than a physical being on another planet. And, you know, maybe they have another planet in their higher dimension, you know, but it's not what we would think of as a planet, perhaps. Um, there seems to be some type of remote receiver that has to be there to channel or, you know, uh, receive the transmission of consciousness. So the fact that they might be ethereal beings without an actual physical anything, even if it was just one single gland, is kind of hard to wrap my mind around um, because it seems like for us, the, the brain is what is the receiver that we're able to um, get the radio transmission that is consciousness and completely agree you know and be able to to work with that energy uh consciousness and what would be more likely is somewhere in the vast infinite there is a physical something but the way that consciousness interacts with consciousness on this planet is Mm -hmm. through the uh immaterial right so you know i do think aliens are so highly advanced that they uh, have understood the science of traversing realms. You know what I mean? It's not, it's the way that we look like, you know, going into the ocean. You know, it's like we can go down to this level, we can come back up to this level, like sea level, this types of things. Like they could traverse down into 3D, but they could go up to 12D or they could do whatever they want really because they're so highly advanced and they've been evolving for Bolinia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? So I don't want to drag you into deep waters where you and I are both contemplating the existence and the nature of aliens, <laughs> and I want to bring it back to your story. Um, can you kind of give us a... Uh, what I tend to find is that most people who end up being either interested enough or confident enough to get in front of a microphone as an adult... They tended to have something that they found as a child that they got good at to the point where they could feel like, oh, I can do something in the world. And mm-hmm. for a lot of people um, who I interview, it tends to be a sport, but it doesn't have to be a sport. Like for me, it was basketball. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if you could kind of tell us your young childhood story in a way where like, uh, what was your childhood like? And then what was the first thing that you started doing as like, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 that gave you a sense of like independence and competence? Totally. Um, recording, you know. So not only video recording, like I mentioned before, I, I had a camera, you know, very blessed to be given, I don't know, $500 camera as a kid, you know, that's feels like something almost meant to be. Um, but also I got, uh, a audio recorder, a little tape recorder, and you could press record on it and tape your stuff, flip the tape over, tape on that side. Um, we would like fast forward it and sound like little chipmunks and, you know, make little talk shows. And I actually, uh, had a talk show around like age 10. And um, who's we are those brothers and sisters? Um, or friends. Young friends. Yeah. 
pretty much friends. Um, I do have two older brothers, but they were much older to the point we didn't have a lot in common. Um, but just by myself, honestly, a lot of times I would just record myself emulating talk shows and these types of things, um, but talking about the things I wanted to talk about and then re-listening to them um, on car rides and things wow. things where I was bored. You know, it's like, I'm going to just re-listen to my own thing again. It's funny because it's the same thing I do today. You know, I record a podcast and I end up listening to it for two days after it releases. And then I'm like, cool, I've got enough of that one. But <laughs> um, so I would say recording, you know, like recording me and my friends, we do skits, we do funny things, we'd make sounds like we're getting abducted by aliens because I was very into aliens. Still, I am very interested in them. And I've actually been to Area 51, um, which is cool. I didn't go inside, (laughs) but we went out there. Um, But we would, you know, kind of do uh, movies through audio. You know, like uh, they used to read stories on the radio a long time ago before TV was a thing. Yeah, It's kind of like that, you know, but, you know, much less professional. We were just kids playing around, but we would just make funny noises just and just laugh our ass off, really, you know, and entertain ourselves for days and weeks with... Where did you grow up? Georgia. And what was school like? Like, at, around that time in your life, what was school like? Um, never really liked school. Uh, I did it. And really, mostly only looked forward to the fact that I got to see my friends at school. Yeah. Almost all the class stuff... Uh, I wasn't into, and I did just enough to pass. Um, but I also would get in trouble a ton for talking. I was always talking. I was always in the principal's office for talking. I was never in the principal's office for fighting or, you know, vandalizing or yeah. nothing like that. It was just, he won't stop talking. You know what I mean? It's interesting. I heard some uh, scientist I've, or some researcher, I'm pretty sure it was a PhD psychologist, but they're like, one of the easiest ways to see um, like the high IQ children is they're the ones who misbehave. <laughs> now it's not always that case, but it tends to be that the ones who are uninterested, mm-hmm. um, like they tend to be the ones who act up and the way that they act up is like, they're making jokes. Mm-hmm. They're talking to the teacher, not, you know, like the one who's asleep and then wakes up and then like punches someone like that's a right. different type of thing. Um, what was the, uh, like first thing in your life, or I guess what was the first dream that you had of like what you wanted to be and like, how old were you when you first like felt that dream? Like for me, I had no idea of my future until I got a basketball Mm -hmm. and I felt what it was like to like suck. And then like a year later, be like the best person on my team in my age group in my town. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go be a professional basketball player right and that became like the first thing that i was chasing as like a young person what was your version of that you know to be a film director um i'm still not there i've worked with ton of films but i guess on the steven spielberg michael bay level type thing like i want to make movies this good like this dope Uh, since i was little i don't know why i was attracted to it i just was um and it changed a few times and i uh, pivoted to use my filmmaking interests to work for different things I was doing. Um, for example, I started skateboarding um, for five years and I was just, I was the filmer. I would mm. just film all my friends that were better than me skating 
kickflipping five stairs, ollieing off eight foot loading docks, these types of things. I was the one filming. And, you know, I skated too, but I wasn't nearly as good as some of the people I hung out with. Um, but I was there to, you know, show my skill of capturing this for you guys. I'm going to take it home, put some music to it. And we're all going to watch it and so dope. get a great vibe from it, you know? And we always did. And I loved that. I really loved that. Um, so, yeah, making movies has been my dharma, I guess, you know, as I've learned in recent uh, years. Um, and uh, it's been in several manifestations that I film make, um, jumping from one interest to another interest, but always recording. Yeah. You know, what was the standout moment in high school? Like, what was the most defining, pivotal moment for you in high school? Mm. I guess forming my band. I had a band with a number of uh, talented musicians. Uh, we started probably around 10th grade in high school and uh, playing our first few shows and getting our buddies out to seeing us. And those moments were always like I was on cloud nine after those shows. You know what I mean? Um, uh, I also became very interested in music at a point. Um, always loved music. You know, when I think back to even earlier than high school and stuff, we would jump on the trampoline. We had a trampoline and I would play loud music and pretend like I was on stage. Wow. Like performing the music, um, doing front flips, kick flip, not kick flip, back flips, jump like somersaults, like jumping off of the trampoline and landing on the ground. Cause when you're a kid, your bones are like malleable and bouncy. So you can <laughs> land. If I just do it now, I break my ankle. You know what I mean? But And I actually jumped on trampoline not too long ago, and I was like, this is exhausting. How did I used to do it for eight hours and shit, yeah. you know? Um, but, yeah, so, so music is another very equal part of my life, my appreciation for music. Um, so, yeah, forming my band was definitely one of the highlights of, yeah. of high school. And then the fact that there's this built-in community in high school, yeah. which is, again, one of the more interesting things I, I found about school, um, you know, and inviting people, Hey, this, we're going to be at this, uh, there was this place called Ampus. It's closed now, but it was a rehearsal hall where you could pay an hourly fee and go rehearse with your band. Oh, that's um, dope. We did that. And it was a kind of a way to get away from the house and not be under the supervision of our parents and say what we wanted to say and do what we wanted to do. And, play around and joke around and be loud and um, whatnot. But one time we invited, I don't know, 10 people to come to our rehearsal space. And we were like, this is our first show, you know, like it was just in our own rehearsal space, but uh, they loved it. Even parents came like That's parents awesome. of the kids came like we heard they, they wanted to go to a show and, you know, I felt like we killed it. If I was to look back, I don't know if it would be very good, but. <laughs> you had the presence of mind not to record that. Yes, we did. One of the things that I feel coming through is there's this really clear uh, pattern in your life of the importance of <clears throat> having a community, mm -hmm. of having a team. You know, yeah. like the way you told the Will Smith story is he and his team. Right. 
and then you and your friends with the recorder and then you and your band with totally, the music totally and like now and we'll eventually get to like the present day but you do lead a team of like really incredible art artists um what did you do after graduating high school and had psychedelics come into your life yet psychedelics had not i um through high school, looked at people who smoked weed, which is, you know, the, the intro level psychedelic as kind of people wasting their life. Same. You know, I was like, what are y'all doing, man? Yeah. Like, don't you want to like do something with your life instead of sit around and get high and stuff? Munch out, you know? Like I had this total judgment against people that, Same. yeah, that would smoke weed. Um, so I had no interest in it. I was actually very opposed. Same. Um, but then... My best friend started doing it. Same. <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. All right, let me try this. Yeah. So one of my best friends turned into like one of the top drug dealers in a large <laughs> city. And so it got to the point where it was just always around and it was free. And mm -hmm. I tried it. Yeah, yeah. same. Um, so in college, I uh, went for business administration. That Gross. was a yeah, that I'm was a, that was a weird. <laughs> part of my life where I was being influenced by these pitches trying to get you to convince that college is the most important thing you could ever do. Oh yeah. They would come to class it and tell you It didn't even feel like a pitch at that mm -hmm. point in the zeitgeist. It felt like these people truly believed it because right. they didn't get it. Yeah. 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 So I, I really fell into that and I was like actually really interested in going a hundred thousand dollars in debt to learn shit that isn't going to help me on my path. Thank God it didn't really manifest for me. Um, but uh, I, I went for a uh, degree that I felt would, you know, um, make me quote unquote successful in the adult life, which, you know, is business, you know, business, you know. <laughs> um, so Come I went. be a part of the machine that's eating the world. Right. The yeah. World. I was convinced by my, my older, older brother. I have two brothers. One's even older um, that this is what he did and it made him successful. And I said, okay, let me go for business. And I went. An interesting thing to feel into is psychologically, um, if someone has made a choice that was actually against the call of their daemon, one of the ways that they protect themselves is to try to get people they love or care about to make the same choice. Yep. And that if, if, if you go, if they were able to go really deep in what was happening inside of them, mm -hmm. On one level of depth, it feels like it's actually cruel or evil, but it's because deeper down than that, they're terrified that they made the wrong choice mm. and they're trying to alchemize that terror. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I completely agree with where I'm at today, um, that that was probably uh, a major factor in what was going on there. Um, but so, yeah, through college... Uh, I actually uh, did, you know, one, one and a half years of, of doing this business thing and finding out I didn't like it. And then you ate mushrooms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so started smoking cannabis. I was actually having saying. extremely mind altering experiences with Same. cannabis, psychedelic Same. visions from cannabis. And I thought this is what it does to everyone. And of course I was a, uh, my, my judgment against cannabis user, users were sh was shattered because I was like, oh, these guys are doing deep work up in here. You know what I mean? Um, and I realized it was something completely other than what I thought it was. Um, 
in hindsight, it wasn't affecting everyone that way, but I thought it was, you know, for my, my first year of smoking. Um, so the, this is actually really interesting. I've never really gotten into this, but what was your unconscious, implicit ceremonial container and rituals around smoking? Because like mm-hmm. for me, it's so funny, man. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure I've never talked about this on the podcast. Um, my ritual was me and my friends in the evening would gather in my garage and we had like a bunch of like couches and yeah. in the middle was a table with like the bongs and yep. the weed and there was a speaker. Yep. And um, we would just like smoke and vibe to music for a while. But then what would just organically happen is I would start teaching them whatever I learned in school that day in my psychology class. Mm. We just did that for years. We would just get fucking blitzed. Mm-hmm. We riff on some shit. It was almost always led by me and it was something philosophical or psychological or scientific. If we could have recorded the amount of things that I'm sure I exaggerated for effect <laughs> because we were high to see their fucking minds get blown, right. it would probably be the most cringy thing ever. And then we would go play Halo oh, cool. and just get into flow. Mm-hmm. So like we would like talk for like an hour and a half and then we'd play Halo for like two hours. And that yeah. was just like what we did for like two years almost yeah. every day. Yeah, I played Halo too. That's a, it was a fun game. Uh, very similar ceremony uh, with ours, um, which was after the parents were asleep. Uh, so it was always in dead of night. Uh, 11. Damn, so did you guys do it in a house where there were parents yes, where you we weren't did. supposed to do it? Exactly. That feels like that would put so much paranoia in me. Right. Well, what was funny is it wasn't my house. So I was like, I'm not getting in trouble. So if you think this is, we're, wow. we're good to do this, I will do it. You know? Um, and also, he had chill parents. They didn't want know. us doing it, but they weren't going to. I see. You know, they weren't going to get crazy mad. Um, but so it would be, well, one interesting thing is we always had to be together. In fact, if someone smoked without everyone, we would give them a ton of shit for it. Yeah, that's be so like, cool. Why yeah. would, bro, come on. Are yep. you kidding me? You smoked without us, you know? Um, so that was kind of cool. What was the size of the group? Mine was like five to six most of the time. Um, Minimum three, and it went up to about six. Yeah. and But at least three of us had to be together if we were going to do the ceremony, mm-hmm. you know? And we had no idea of ceremony yeah. or ritual. I, we it, never called it, it that, happens. but we knew intuitively that that's... That there was a right There was a specialness to, to what was going on, yeah. you know? Like, it needed to be held in high regard because this is a magical thing happening. Um, and But what we would do, rather than kind of talk philosophy, which it evolved to that, but it, it first started with just discovering the music we loved in an altered state. So we would hear the same songs we had been hearing for five years, but it was all new. Yep. It was brand new. What the hell? I haven't heard any of this before, yep. you know? I remember the first time I got high and I heard a song and I was just completely like, it was a different life. And then afterwards I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have to re-listen to every song I've ever listened to on weed. And it became mm-hmm. this like thing that Same. I would do for a couple of weeks where for I was just sure. like on YouTube trying to think of the songs from my childhood. <laughs> exactly. So um, it was that, you know, um, that's what it was. It was discovering music and music we had already known. And it felt like we were still discovering it, which was funny. Every time you heard it, there was something new in it you hadn't heard before, a new instrument, a new 
yeah. lyric that you could finally understand what it meant. You know, like I understand where he's coming from. I thought I knew before, but now I really know, you know? Yeah. Um, so we did that for about a year. And then we heard the next step is magic mushrooms, you know? So let's try this thing. And I had about two mushroom trips where I honestly didn't feel very much. It was kind of like, I felt like I had like two beers and I felt like, oh yeah, I feel a little different. I feel different for sure. But um, it's not giving me the effect I read about online. So the next time we were like, dude, let's take like triple the amount and let's see what this does. And that was my spiritual awakening. I, we went to the park and we drank orange juice. We heard the, we we heard orange juice apparently uh, kicks the effect up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so what we did is we ate the mushrooms. We walked to HEB, bought orange juice, drank the orange juice on the way walking to a park, and dude, it kicked in so fast. Literally, maybe thirty minutes after we ate them, it was like we're in another world. No. Like this is intense. My friends were getting really scared. Actually, I was having a joyous time. I was like, this is freaking awesome. Some of my friends are like, oh, I need to throw it up, dude. I can't do this. And then one of my friends runs over to a tree and starts forcing himself to throw up, sticking his hands down his throat. He still tripped balls, even though he got of it out. He did. You know what I mean? Um, but I was, I had almost no uh, inkling of what spirituality was prior to that. I knew what religion was, but not spirituality. And how old were you? 20? Um, I'd say 20, 21. Yeah. And um, that was a life-changing experience. You know, like really, I guess one of the biggest peak moments was looking up at the trees um, and seeing them shifting and moving and dancing in the wind and realizing they are almost like people. Yeah. They have a beingness to them. And then the sky itself as well uh, was doing some amazing stuff, just uh, kaleidoscopic imagery. You know, I'm going into a vortex type uh, visuals and it really felt like this is heaven. This is nirvana. This is what they speak of uh, as, the, as the highest kind of experience a human can have and it was off 3.5 grams of mushrooms with orange juice in a park um profound experience and completely shook up everything i thought i knew about life and led me down this path of uh spirituality that i'm still learning every day in, and it has the most interest uh my mo it has the highest level of attention than anything in my life, you know, like what there's a million things that competes for our attention every day. But the thing that's always the first priority is the spiritual path, you know? So I don't know if I answered the question. I might've got off. No, of course you did. There's a, <laughs> a, a few things that arise. One is that first moment, um, and in my life, it was facilitated by mushrooms too. But it's where you look out at a manifestation of nature. Because mm -hmm. like one of the things to feel into is we're essentially surrounded by tools. Mm -hmm. Like inside of this house, 
I think the differentiation between nature and tool is you could say that the designer of nature is nature, but the designer of tools is the is human cognition. And there's something specific and unique. Mm-hmm. But that when you're in nature, it could be a fucking the blades of grass in your backyard or a tree or a fucking mountain or a river. But that first time when you feel viscerally its livingness Mm -hmm. and like its infinite depth and almost like it's looking into you. Mm -hmm. Like I've had this one experience where I was on, um, I took five grams uh, and I took a little bit of MDMA and I went to a beach. Oh, wow. And as I was getting into the car with my girlfriend at the time, I took that first deep breath that you get when you take MDMA and mm, it hits and like yeah. you're breathing. It's a fundamental, it's the MDMA breath. It's yeah. totally different. Um, but with the assistance of the mushrooms, it genuinely and viscerally felt like air was a living entity and that it was breathing me. Yes. Like, and I've, I've had, you know, the experiences with trees, um, mm. with mountains. Uh, I haven't, really connected to it yet on or with an ocean but just that feeling of like a tree being like i've been here for 200 years right yeah that's what i was connecting to as well was seeing how much wisdom they hold and how many experiences they've been witness to yeah hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people have been around it yeah and and leaned on it and maybe some of them hugged it you know and uh whole bunch of stuff all the animals living in it the, the birds nests that have come and gone you yeah. know like all the crazy i was like this thing is uh of a, a higher order and we're in its world like the plant isn't in the human world we are visitors in its world you would love the book overstory okay um someone recommended it to me when i started writing my weekly newsletter about like my call to connect to the earth more Mm -hmm. and graham our producer in the background he's been reading it too and like it's 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 essentially from the perspective of trees Mm. like this massive human drama unfolding Mm -hmm. but like the thing that bears witness to all these human dramas and the birth and death of entire lives is just this like it's just this tree i would love to to check that out it's psychedelic Um, (laughs) that's beautiful one thing i did want to mention because you mentioned the breath uh i've understood that thing as prana the life force energy uh it is breathing you because it allows you to live if that makes sense like it is the the elements contained within breath, um, and I use elements as a more of a metaphor there, um, is the life-giving essence that allows this all to happen. So I don't know. That's just something that came up when you mentioned the breath uh, as a profound experience for you. Yeah, what it felt like is it felt like in the same way that like a lover kisses you. Mm-hmm. It felt like there was a energetic personality entity that because it loved me was choosing to mm. participate in the breath thing. And that yes. all I had to do was like open the vase right. and it was pouring in the water. Right. And it just like, 
it felt like air was making love to me. Yeah. And of course that was helped and facilitated by the MDMA because everything <laughs> feels like it's making love to you if you take enough MDMA. Sure, sure. Um, how did your life behaviorally change after your awakening experience? Because my first one was with, my, or was with uh, marijuana. Mm-hmm. And... I had just finished my first year of college. I dropped out of all my classes. My GPA was a 0.7 and I was just throwing my life away. Mm -hmm. And after my awakening, the first one, because the thing is, is you wake up and then you fall asleep and then you have to deal with the tension of knowing that you're capable of waking up, but that you live most days asleep. And then that's when the whole fucking dance starts. Mm -hmm. But the big change for me was this like, almost manic slash multiple personality Mm. disorder change in behavior where the very next day I started listening to lectures, reading my textbooks and becoming obsessed with learning and working out and just Mm -hmm. trying to show up to this life because I felt like I was just throwing everything away. Uh, How did your life change after that mushroom experience? Yes, I was so fascinated by how I was able to see in that state that I was on a quest to permanently see that way. I wanted the psychedelic state to be my baseline consciousness. And I looked everything under the sun up to discover how to do that. The very next day, even the the next day I woke up and I was like, I was still pretty much in it. I mean, this altered state that the mushrooms provided actually lasted two weeks. Wow. Um, and I wouldn't say manic or, um, you know, because most people would think you're in a psychosis or something like that. Um, right. People inside of the matrix who see people acting like they're outside of the matrix right. have given it a, a label as a disorder so they sure. can get then give you psychotropic medicine to mm. make you act in a way that they're comfortable. And it's sure. a whole side note and there's a lot of bullshit or some helpful stuff there, but yeah. Totally. Well, what I was taking this experience as um, was a shockwave. There's a shockwave, mm. you know, it's like an atomic bomb went off in my brain and my consciousness and uh just like an atomic bomb has a shockwave that lasts days and weeks after its initial explosion uh, i felt like my consciousness was still pretty expanded for at least two weeks um, to the point i wasn't having my normal daily patterned thoughts that i was used to i was very clear and in the now um and uh my will was clear as day to be in relationship with. Sometimes you lose your will. It's like, where did it go? Like, why am I doing shit that I'm not willingly deciding to do? You know? And the thing that I would offer, and I think a lot of people might be uncomfortable with, but that most people listening to this podcast won't be, is it's, you don't sometimes lose your will. Mm-hmm. You've spent most of your life, 99% of your life without your will. Mm. And that if you're really lucky, I wanted to make a pun and said, if you're willy lucky, <laughs> uh, you maybe get 1% of your day where you're truly in your will. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, cognitive science and neuroscience that backs up like really how small that sliver is. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's like people like Sam Harris who would claim that there's no sliver. And um, I disagree, but he has become famous because he made an argument that everyone wants to talk to him about and disagree with him on. But mm -hmm. smart move, Sam Harris, to create an argument <laughs> where everyone would want to defend themselves against it so you get to talk about it for the next 10 years. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, please go on. Yeah, I mean, I was just very in touch with this... Um, spiritual mindset um and yeah being able to clearly see where i wanted to spend my energy mental and otherwise and so i was just you know i went down a rabbit hole of discovering all of the different ancient mystical traditions that seemed to help people uh, stay in contact with this heightened state of consciousness so the first thing was meditation um i could actually attain deep meditation with relative ease for the first several weeks after this one mushroom experience. I would sit down and almost see golden light in my forehead. Um, and this is after two minutes. You know, usually if you're going to meditate, it's going to take you an hour to start even getting those altered state effects. I would sit down, I'd be like, oh, let me try meditation. You know, like I read it was good for maintaining a higher state of consciousness. And I would sit there like two minutes later, oh, it's working. <laughs> I'm seeing lights and beautiful peace and tranquility and I'm feeling it all. And I'm like, dang, okay. So this, there's something to this for sure. Um, another one was yoga. Um, so I, I would try yoga and then after my yoga, smoke some cannabis and I would be back again. I'd be like, dude, I'm totally in the heightened state that the mushrooms offered. It did take the combination of yoga and cannabis. Um, just yoga itself, I felt good, but I didn't feel like altered. Um, but if you just smoke cannabis without yoga, it wasn't there either. You know, like it was, it was an altered state. But the combination of yoga, an hour of yoga and then cannabis was like, I'm back. You know, like this is the state that I want to be my baseline. Um, and, um, Let's see. There was, so, so essentially daily spiritual practice is what changed after that awakening. I was constantly enamored with the fact that I could do these couple, invest 10, 20 minutes, maybe an hour of my day to feel pretty damn close to how I did that day on mushrooms. Yeah. You know? Um, so my life changed dramatically after that for sure. And, and to this day, I'm doing breath work. I'm doing yoga. And I'm and I'm maintain meditation, and I'm maintaining a heightened state as my baseline for the most part. You know, I'm not perfect, but <laughs> one of the things that comes to mind when I feel into um, the call or the urge to try to bring the psychedelic state of consciousness to baseline and have it as a baseline is, um, I do not want that. But it feels like it's because um, the psychedelic state, there's channels. Let's just say for the sake of a metaphor to convey useful meaning, let's say that there's five channels. Mm -hmm. Have you done five MEO? One time. Okay, so let's say that that's channel five. Okay. You're not moving your body. Yeah, that's you're true. Not that's not the state I'm talking right, about. Right, right, right. <laughs> you're, you're not interacting with anything because you cannot perceive any individual thing. It's all... Yeah. 
one infinite all yes. thing. I'm glad you clarified that because it's probably like a channel one. Right. It's like, right. How, how do you feel off of a little bit of shrooms and stuff? That The right. clarity of mind, the cl- the sharpness of your vision, 100%. your creativity just channeling effortlessly, that's yeah. kind of what I'm talking about. That resonates because even like stage four, which is right below five, it's like um, I'm able to think things, but it's completely unorganized and chaotic and like, my visionary space is intermingling with my actual physical space. And mm-hmm. like, I can't really see the couch, but it kind of looks like it's turning into like the side of a mountain. <laughs> and like, if someone, one of the things that's interesting is that when you're in like channel four or channel three, mm-hmm. what I'm really aware of and um, my understanding and studies in psychology have helped me understand this, but that your physiological state influences your conscious perception Mm -hmm. and primes it to seek out something that would justify the emotional, Mm -hmm. like the feelings coming from your sense organs. And so Mm -hmm. an example of this is that if you're paranoid or if something scares you, like you might not even realize it, but if you hear the door open and and you're not even conscious to it, And you have the felt sense of like, there's something coming up behind me and I don't feel ready for it. Before you even process that you think that your body is sending signals to your brain that is having your brain seeking out something that would justify being afraid. Yeah. And that if you're in a five or if you're, if you're in a four or a three of the, of those five channels Mm -hmm. and something scares your body for a moment. Yeah the couch that at first was turning into a mountain will instantly start to move into something disgusting or terrifying or whatever the thing is. And so you're just so fragile or susceptible to the energy of the surroundings as they impinge on your animal body. And it's fucking exhausting if the container isn't contained. Totally. Like if you touch a three or a four and you're at a fucking festival. Yeah. That's not a good time. Totally. Um, I say that all the time. I always say people should hold these medicines in such a sacred regard that you are 100% um, you know, uh, holding the container as sacred. And you know, these festival things might be good for lighter doses of things, um, very community-oriented oriented, uh, experiences where you can talk and you can hug and you can walk and all this stuff. But um, if you're really going to dive deep and go internal, uh, I would say you need to be in a safe place where almost all of the factors are uh, in your control. Yeah. If you're at a four and you're at a festival, you're the person that just had a panic attack who really thinks they just died and are Mm -hmm. being carried out on a stretcher and everyone's oogling at. It's just not the right container. 100%. But yeah, so if we come down from the four or to the three, like a two, I would say is it's like, I think I was at a two on Sunday. Me and Mm -hmm. Graham took a little bit too much of a microdose of LSD. Mm -hmm. And it's the space where it's like, if I'm not trying to do anything that requires my conscious mind to like check an email or write a text message or like do the report Mm -hmm. and I allow myself just to flow through the day, it's Mm -hmm. ecstatic. Yeah, If I have to sit down, and do something with my brain, it's 
super uncomfortable. Sure, sure. But then the afterglow of that type of slightly uncomfortable, too much of a microdose, which yeah. I would say is a one, mm -hmm. that is a good place yes. to be. 100%. And uh, just as I think you'd be really interested in Jamie Wheel's book, Recapture the Rapture, if you haven't checked it out yet. I haven't. It's incredible. But he basically, he makes the argument that the biggest issue in our world right now is our lack of uh, functional and coherent meaning. Mm. And that he thinks that the best way to help solve that problem is to open source uh, transcendence. Oh, yeah. And so he creates something in the book called the Alchemist's Cookbook, which is a play on the Anarchist's Cookbook. Mm -hmm. And it's um, five modalities that are free. Mm -hmm. but that you can also spend a bunch of money if you want to get really fancy with it. Mm -hmm. That if you do them in a specific way, you will have altered states of consciousness. And that if you combine them, if you mm -hmm. stack them, mm -hmm. you can have, you can get to a five or a four or a three uh -huh. or a two. And the five are breath work, yeah. embodiment. And so that's everything from like yoga to like mm. starvation to sleep deprivation, but using mm -hmm. the like instincts of the body. Sure. Uh, the third one is um, sacraments. Okay. You know, that's, you know, all the stuff that we just talked about. The medicines, about, yeah. Right. And then the fourth one is sex. Okay. And one of the arguments that he makes is that um, the orgasmic state is one of the most uh, consistent mind-altering sensations and that if you pair that with all these other things, you get really powerful responses. Mm -hmm. And then all four of those can be amplified by music. Oh, yeah. The music has been used since before we had language yeah. to create trance states. And totally. like every shaman, every archetypical shaman from every cultural uh, lens that we have history or evidence of. Mm -hmm. They were using some type of music, some type of movement, and some type of chanting. Yep. And uh, I just think that you'd really like that. Yeah, be a way to totally. Sounds like I'm on most of those already, but yeah, I need yeah. to check that out. That's great. And so once you started changing your life, um, what did you start doing? Yeah, I started, you know, unknowingly listening to the daemon. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just uh, my intuition. I just said, oh, well, I should probably do these things that are really calling out to me that would seem to fulfill my life if I were to do them and, and achieve them and uh, find success with them. And um, one of the first things is I want to take my music career seriously. I don't want to just dabble. I want to actually become a professional musician and I uh, really became kind of obsessed with becoming a good musician, yeah. you know, because I, I didn't take music in school. Uh, I don't know how to read music. Uh, I never really was properly trained. Um, but I knew that I loved music and I had some type of ability to channel um, my emotions and my mental imagery into sound. And so what instruments. I, so synthesizers, mm. piano, uh, and uh, drum um, machines. Those are literally the three instruments that I'm the most called to fuck around with. Yeah. And also a thing that came up is 
It's almost like we have to rescue the spirit that we try to represent when we say seriously in the way that you used it, because I completely resonate. But there's so many people who are turned off by that word. And mm -hmm. I think the word that comes to me is like devotional. Mm -hmm. Like I was ready to devote myself. Totally. You know, I was, I was. Um, I began taking music extremely seriously, devoting myself to it for sure. Um, and we wrote uh, an album called Botany, The Study of Plants. And it was very much a, a psychedelic album. And oh, it yeah. was my discovery of uh, altered states through music. I was trying to encapsulate the experiences I had had and distill them into songs. And, uh, and, I, and I, we did that. And we put it out. And uh, we, that, that year, we won Best New Band in the San Antonio Current. That's fucking dope. Um, because we actually went really hard at getting it out there. We literally. How old were you at the time that? Um, say twenty two. And you know we didn't have CD manufacturing. This what was type the name of, of your band? Something Fiction. Love it. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have CD manufacturing, but we would print. Uh, you know, go get the CDRs from Walmart and put our music on it, and put stickers. Damn, uh, so you would buy blank CDs yeah. and then come home and then yep. just burn them. Holy shit, you must yeah. have ruined some old computer <laughs> just frying that shit. That's, that's totally. awesome. But we would hand it out everywhere. Like it was the most important mission we were on. Wow. It was How like, many people were in the band? Uh, three. Um, so that's fucking dedication. I love it. I, I, I can see my shitty computer that I had back then <laughs> and just putting it in drives and hitting yep. burn. Yep. We actually made a time lapse of us doing like a hundred of them. Wow. We filmed it and then wow. we watched us doing all the stuff for hours on end. I love that dude. Um, yeah, thank you. And we, we gave How them away. You, okay. Yeah. We gave away something. hundreds of them. You know, money was never really an interest of mine to, to come from the arts. Um, so we weren't concerned with selling them. We just wanted people to hear it. You know, if they hear it, that's a, you know, we, we consider that success. And this is before SoundCloud and Lime, well, maybe LimeWire was out, but I it just for sure was after LimeWire. Yeah, like, it was after LimeWire, like but, but right there now. wasn't like an op, you know an open source way that SoundCloud and Spotify right. and all this stuff works today that we could share links. So it had to still be on a physical, um, unless it was like on YouTube, I guess. But but so we did that. Uh, got really serious at doing that, and then uh, doing shows. So we started taking shows with other musicians in San Antonio. Um, every show we, we could get our hands on. And we were just constantly performing, performing, performing all the how time. How were you guys paying for your lives at that point? What do you mean? Like, how are you paying for rent and food and stuff? Oh, yeah. I worked at HEB for six years. I see. Yeah. So I worked at HEB. Didn't make very much money, but <laughs> it, I got by. And I live with my mom, so I didn't have rent. Um, but And I really didn't have to pay for food either. You know, just eat what, whatever was in the fridge. Um, and we did that to the point that we actually became friends with pretty much the whole music scene in San Antonio. Wow. And a lot of people were interested in working with us. And I, I found the best way to potentially work together would be to create an artistic collective. And that is what was the founding of Time Wheel, which is now our record label and creative studio and recently podcast network. But, um, so by working with all these different musicians, it was easy to just like network and make shows. Like 
we're all in group chats and stuff. It's like, hey, y'all want to play this? Y'all want to play that? Oh, you're not available? Let me ask someone else. Like constantly just like making shows happen in an independent way. Wow. Like I was self-organizing events. Didn't feel like I was an event organizer. Now I realize that's a profession. I was just a dude that wanted to play my music. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we would uh, organize these shows with our friends and um, have fun. Really, that's what it was about, was just expressing ourselves on stage and that high you get when you get off. Like, ah, I could finally rest for a little while, you know? <laughs> um, so That's such a good way to put it, man. I've never really felt into it, but like people who have a strong craving of their daemon to go do their thing. Mm -hmm. It's like you work really hard so that you can do the thing that gives flow so that you can have a moment of, <sighs> yeah, I could finally then, just hang out. Like nothing's on my mind. Like I just want to be with my bros, you know? And it doesn't last. Until, yeah. It lasts know, like, like a week or two. And then you're like, what am I going to do again? <laughs> my window is way smaller than that. I, well, I back then it was a week things. or two. Yeah, now yeah. I know what you're saying. It's like two days now. <laughs> I mean, it's probably a reflection of stuff that, uh, are still wounds for me that like the window might be like at most an evening. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's probably a reflection of like, Hey Eric, you probably only think that you're worthy of love if you produce and make things. And that's a reflection of things that you haven't really healed yet. Sure. Sure. I can relate to that. So what feels like, so we now have the birth of time wheel yeah, and that feels like that's kind of the current. So how long have you been, uh, watering the garden of time wheel and what's that mm -hmm. part of the story yeah um eight years um started as that artistic collective um i was inspired by other musicians who were a part of artistic collectives and i said well we one just organically formed in front of me so i may as well just call it an artistic collective and put a name to it you know so we did um time wheel the name came from the concept of the wheel of time and I just kind of saw it in a book and I saw the logo uh, in a mandala. Uh, and that's a Buddhist mandala. idea? Yeah. Uh, so I saw a mandala in a book and it said Wheel of Time. And I saw, I don't know, my mind just connected Time Wheel. And I saw the, the logo that we have inside of the mandala. It was much simpler. The mandala was like extremely detailed. Mm -hmm. But I could see like a general outline. Um, and I said, oh, that's the logo right there. So I made it, named it. People were thrilled with it. They were like, dope image, dope logo, whatever. Um, we'd love to be a part of this. So the Artistic Collective lasted a few years. And then we said, let's just make this a record label. You know what I mean? Because really, it's the same thing. Um, it's just the fact that now we're going to distribute music instead of just play shows together. Um, so we, we fell into... Um, a record label organically forming. And we were inspired by other independent record labels, one of which is a Stone's Throw, and another is Brain Feeder. And we saw what they were doing, and we were like, hey, well, let's just do this for San Antonio because no one else is. So we started doing that, um, releasing cassettes, CDs, uh, online streams, uh, hooking up with dope people that we felt were like uh, channeling music from a similar place that we were. And uh, we did that for years, and it's still, you know, technically a, a record label. Um, and uh, it also became a creative studio or a company. 
So, you know, maybe five years into Time Wheel, we said, it's time to make this an LLC, you know? So we uh, got some money uh, together, saved up, and then created an LLC and started providing creative services, um, mostly audio engineering. Um, video work here and there, but I didn't really have like good cameras yet. I could still record stuff, but I didn't feel like I had value enough to like charge for my video services. Um, so we would do audio engineering. We would have actually podcast clients come in and record in my space and I would just lend them my audio gear. They would record their show and leave and I would send them the podcast, you know, um, as well we started to do just editing, so not filming, but editing video. And uh, that's kind of around the time we started to get linked up with Aubrey um, because he noticed that we were kind of making waves in the online world with Time Wheel. And, you know, we had a meeting and we threw some ideas around. Um, big shouts to CT, actually, for bringing me under his wing and uh, getting me the meeting with Aubrey. Uh, and then we learned how to create professional digital assets, you know, like more or less podcast clips that looked good, that told the story, that got people intrigued as to how, uh, I mean, intrigued enough to go listen to the full podcast type thing. Um, so that's like Time Wheel LLC being the creative studio. And then more recently, uh, only in the past three months, I'd say, we just so happened to be friends with a ton of podcasters because I listen to their shows and I reach out and say, yo, this is amazing. Like, I love the part where you talked about this or that. And thank you for what you're doing because it's honestly helping me uh, tremendously to, to feel like I have a friend almost like that gets it, you know, because a lot of people I'm around is, you know, like they might get it a little bit, but you know, these podcasters get it a lot. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about, bro. You know, so, <laughs> so we, uh, we said, okay, we'd have like five friends doing podcasts. Let's do the same thing we did with music, but for podcasts now. So we have the Time Wheel Podcast Network, which is uh, at timewheel.net or twpn.net. And um, that's currently Time Wheel's mission is to share not only the music that we're inspired by, but the conversations that we're inspired by as well. What do you feel as the vision of uh, like what your ideal future would be for the collective like five years from now? I would like everyone to be fully sustained uh, doing what they love. You know, they don't have to do work they don't want to do anymore. Yeah. They just get to do what they love, whether it be make music or make podcasts or make art. We've also been kind of a hub of art, just like, you know, paintings and stuff. Like we share paintings um, and cu curate them with very thought-provoking words, quotes, types of stuff that I feel uh, drives home the message of the painting. Yeah. And then we'll share that around the social networks and this type of thing. So um, we do primarily work with music and uh, video and audio um, but also just, you know, art. So when we do events, cause we still do events, just like we used to make those shows when we were in the artistic collective stage, uh, we always invite visionary artists to come set up and live paint. So, because I really yeah. feel like it's, 
channeling the same stuff we're channeling as musicians 100%. and podcasters, but in just a different form. 100%. So Time Wheel is like like the, uh, the roof under which visionary art can flourish. That is my mission. I feel like if I can help these guys do what they want to do and not have to do things they don't want to do, that I will have succeeded. You know? And if we uh, shift gears a little bit and you feel into, let's say that you've achieved manifesting what your daemon has asked you to manifest in this life, and you've arrived to your last day. You know you're going to die that night in your sleep. How old do you feel or how old are you? Where are you? How do you spend that last day? And who do you spend it with? My intuition is saying it's uh, a little older. I'm going to go with 70. Um, what I spend my day doing, possibly a uh, healing journey with my closest friends. I want to say MDMA. <laughs> Um, because it, it really is that. You don't have to worry about the come down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. And, and it really is that like peak level of empathy and love um, that can be felt group-wide, I feel like. Um, and, the, you know, you can stay in touch with that outside of the MDMA experience, but it's very noticeable in that experience. Um, and yeah, my, my closest friends, you know, like the people that I feel are my soul brothers and sisters, you know, that's what I would really hope happens. And where do you see it happening? Are you outside? Are you inside? Something like a yoga retreat center, something where you can have an inside, but also an outside, you know, like a meditation hall, yeah. something like that. And if you got to write down a single phrase or a piece of wisdom to your children or your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews mm. right before you went to sleep that last night, what would you write down? <sighs> Above all, Follow the inner whisper that is leading you to a fulfilled life. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about success. Just live as deeply as you can. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Thank you for doing what you do in the world. And Thank I can't you. wait for people to see what we got cooking. Thank you so much for having me, brother. It's been an absolute honor.